So if you would, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. As we normally do, I'll begin reading again in this one section, beginning in verse 18. And kind of uh, work our way a a little quickly through it, uh, because it's kind of a review. And then get into uh, the, the, uh, the last phase or the last judgment that comes with mercy. Uh, that we have uh, been dealing with here in Romans chapter 1 is Paul explains basically the plight of man. He is explaining to us uh, really the, the, the history and the psychology of, of man as a group and man as an individual. He's explaining the advantages that we have being created in the image of God and being created by God. We're being told and, and he's explaining to us what it is that God has done for us in ensuring that we have the wherewithal to understand that we are lost and that we are in need of salvation, that we are in need of the help of God. So even though there is the curse of sin, even though we are under the curse of sin uh, because of the sin of Adam and Eve and because of our own sin, God still has been very merciful and kind. He hasn't written us off. Uh, He has given every every single person, again, who's ever been born an opportunity to turn to him. Again, every single individual in the world is not going to hear the gospel. Uh, but I, and I've not mentioned this during this time we've been going through Romans, but the, a, a principle that kind of arises out of Romans 1 is this. Because individuals sometimes think, well, it's still not fair of God um, to have individuals who have lived their lives. If they've never heard the gospel, they've never really had an opportunity to reject the gospel or believe the gospel. So if God then, when they die, sends them to hell, somehow in that God is is guilty of, of wrongdoing or guilty of being unfair. So think of it in this way. Because God understands us, because he created us, the principle that we have here is, even though an individual may not hear the gospel itself, if he is given a little bit of spiritual light and he rejects that little bit of light, that little bit of information, then it does hold that even if he's given more information, he will continue to uh, reject it. Now, now we may think, oh, well, that's, that's unfair. You can't say that. Everybody is different. Uh, one individual may, may indeed do that, but someone else, when you give them more information, may become convinced and overwhelmed with the truth that's there, and then they will turn. Well, that is how we normally think, and we do see that sometimes in the natural world when it comes to maybe, let's say, natural things. You know, you're trying to convince me Let's say that the world is not flat and I'm convinced the world is flat. And as you give me more and more information, suddenly if I become overwhelmed with information and I go, yeah, you know what? It's, it's, it's a globe. It's, it's a sphere. Um, so it's a ball. So yeah, it's, it's not flat. That may be true. But what we're dealing with here is, is a human being in his, uh, his spiritual state. So I'm spiritually dead and I'm unable to respond to God unless God moves my heart and life. I am dead in my sins and my trespasses. I am rejecting the truth of God. The little bit of truth that I'm given by God himself, I am rejecting that. In fact, I am actively suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. So God, who never makes a mistake, then still says that we are without excuse. So these individuals then who have not necessarily heard the gospel, it's God who is saying, they are without excuse. So then it holds true that if man is given a little bit of spiritual truth and he rejects that, 
then he will reject being given more spiritual truth. That's the general principle that I think we find there uh, in this. And so we need to keep that in mind. And that we really can't emphasize that enough because it's human nature to try to find a way to um, justify our unbelief, to justify our lack of belief, to justify our lack of obedience, to justify our rejection of God. Um, it's, it's human nature to try to find, not that we intentionally want to find fault with God, but we do want to find a way to say that, but this individual is an exception to the rule. And here what we see is a blanket condemnation of all men. And this is the word of truth. And so, and it, this applies to all of us. Remember, all of us need to be saved. All of us need to believe in Christ. Christ had to die for every single person who was saved. He didn't just bleed for some and die for some. He had to die for us. That's the only way that, that we could be reconciled to God. So let me begin in verse 18. As Paul really, again, really begins to get into the nitty gritty of, of the truth that he wants to give to the church and to the believers here in Rome. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in, manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So again, God has taken it upon himself to show all men, So, and God never fails at what he does, to show all men that he is angry about unrighteousness and ungodliness, and that what a man's initial response to this is to suppress the truth. Then, Beginning in verse 20, God explains how he has shown it to all men. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Well, what invisible attributes are clearly seen? It's going to tell us. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So the fact that God has great power, it's eternal uh, because it's God. There's no time limit to it. Uh, you you look back into look back into uh, into history as far as you want to. The power of God is there. Look forward as far as you want to the future. The power of God is there. It's, we see the power of God in creation. The power of God in in holding the universe together. So we see His divine power, but we also see His Godhead. And again, as I said before, that's His divinity, that He is God, and that He should be worshipped. That He is this unique, special being that is responsible for everything that exists. So God has made sure that these two things about himself, God has revealed them to everyone. And that's when God says, they are without excuse. So there's no caveat there. There's no uh, exception to the rule. That, that's a blanket statement. So whether that person has been born in inland China or they're in the middle of South America, or they live in the middle of some large city in America, if they're on some deserted island, doesn't matter. Uh, this is what's true of all men. Verse 21, because although they knew God, so again, we see this emphasis that, that man knows God. This is not in a salvific way, but in the way that they know that God does exist, that he's real and that he exists. And, what is, and so even though man does know that God exists and that he should be worshiped, what does man do? They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So man refuses to believe in what he knows to be true. He suppresses what he knows to be true. He doesn't glorify 
the one he knows he should glorify and worship. He's not grateful to the one he knows he should be grateful to. His own existence is, uh, is a reality because of God and what God has done. And so this individual then who is thinking this way becomes empty in his thoughts. So it begins to affect his thinking in every area. And his foolish heart, spiritually, is darkened even more. Then, verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. So this individual then proclaims his own great intelligence, and then he becomes a fool. Uh, and a fool is, is an individual who knows that God exists and refuses to acknowledge him, refuses to worship him, refuses to allow the fact that God exists enter into his thinking and enter into his reasoning. And so what did he do? Well, he tells us, what did man do? He changed the glory of the incorruptible God. So he, again, he knows that God is, should be glorified. And then the thing that he did specifically was he changed the glory of God into something that he made or something that has been created. And then he worships that. So man has this urge to worship. And instead of worshiping the creator of all things, he worships what's created, whether he worships himself which was created by God, or he worships something he creates, which is really foolish if you think about it. So it says that he changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, and remember there are three times where we have God giving mankind or God giving man over to his sin. So again, this is, this is judgment or discipline, and this is judgment with mercy, meaning Man should be destroyed for what he's done because of his rebellion against God. But God wants to be merciful. So God turns man over to a sin and allows man to go in that direction. Allows him to almost go unhindered. It doesn't say unhindered, but, but he turns him over to it. He becomes consumed by these sins or passions that he's pursuing. And the idea here is that man should reach a, a dead end. These things don't satisfy these things don't give him a sense of accomplishment. They don't give him a sense of meaning. So as he meets this dead end, it then sh he should naturally begin to ask himself questions, which is, so, okay, I've done all these things, and now what? You know, I'm still empty. I still have no meaning. I still have no purpose. That's uh, because he's not worshiping God, the creator. And so that's the mercy part. God doesn't give him what he deserves. Uh, God is gracious. And giving man an opportunity to repent and turn to him. Of course, man doesn't do that. So it says that God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their own bodies among themselves. Some of this I'm not going to go over again because we've been over it the last several weeks. And again, it says they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Then again, man doesn't come to his senses. So verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to vile passions. For even the women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burn in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. So if you would like the details on those verses, you need to go to last week's um, study, and I go into great detail about that and what that means and how we should understand that. But we see what happens as man then pursues the central uh, sensual uh, aspect of life, the sexual aspect of life. Uh, as he pursues that and becomes consumed with that, um, he, he's even affected more. And it says in 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. 
So now this is moving beyond just suppressing truth and unrighteousness. They don't even want there to be a thought of God. They, they don't want to hear it. They don't want it to linger. And so um, they, uh, they don't want to retain God in their knowledge. That's their response to the, to the, to the emptiness of pursuing sexual passions. And so then God just gives them over to a debased mind. So it's pretty bad. Uh, but again, it's still mercy here. And so God's going to over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So I'm not going to rehash the definitions until we get to the one that we haven't covered yet and the explanations, because we covered that again last week, but I will read them. Uh, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Now remember that I said that there's no real order to this. And I believe part of the reason for that is that all of these are viewed as being of the same class. What I mean by that is this is not not so bad to the worst kinds of sins or vice versa. These are all just viewed as being very evil. This is after God's third judgment on man. And, and the reason why I mention that is because we tend to think of some of these as being much lesser sins than others. One of them being the one where it says disobedient to parents. So when, when it talks about being disobedient to parents, it's not talking about the natural course of things where kids disobey their parents, the parents correct them, and the kids learn from that correction. They may not learn even the first time, but the idea is, is that um, kids, if they're being disciplined, will eventually learn that they should not be disobedient to their parents. So it's a big deal then, as I mentioned last week, when parents don't deal with their kids' disobedience. Because what that breeds is more disobedience or contempt for the parents. It doesn't mean the kids will be as evil as they can be, they may appear to be good, but their attitudes are changing. And the attitudes that they have toward their parents, um, it's also going to affect their attitudes towards anyone in authority or any authoritarian institution. And so there's a lack of respect for teachers, a lack of respect for the police, a lack of respect for the courts, a lack of respect for people in society that, that comes from kids who are not disciplined by their parents at home this disobedience here to parents is talking about this habitual kind of um, disobedience that's an ongoing thing where they're not taking to the correction that's being given if it is being given. But then he goes on uh, to talk about more about kind of, uh, I guess you would say the effects. What are the characteristics of these individuals that when God turns man over to a debased mind, and so it says that he becomes, verse 31, undiscerning. That means he can't think straight. He's unable to make right choices. He can't differentiate between what is good and what is best, between what is good and what is evil. Uh, he becomes untrustworthy. Uh, the idea is people will break trust and think nothing of it. Uh, they, you, just, you can't trust them. Uh, that's not a negative view of the world. That's an accurate view of the world. Uh, they're unloving. Uh, we talked before about uh, what that means to be unloving. The idea there is that we're no longer committed to what is best for others. Uh, we're only self-centered is really what he's getting at. 
Then he says unforgiving. Uh, that's a big one today. Um, people just, they're not going to forgive. Uh, people believe in general that there are certain things, certain things that are done to them. That list may change a little bit for individuals, but most of us, there are certain things that if someone was to do, we, we believe that we're justified to not forgive others for things they've done. Normally what we say are things like, well, they don't deserve my forgiveness. Well, that's actually always true. No one deserves our forgiveness, but people need our forgiveness. God's not forgiven anyone who deserved it. No one's ever deserved forgiveness, but we desperately need his forgiveness. Forgiveness is a, is, is a concept. True forgiveness is a concept that, it, that really is very, very difficult to grasp, understand, and accept. Because to the non-believer, what it sounds like is it sounds like we're saying that it doesn't matter. And that's not what we're saying. It also sounds like a person is getting away with something. And this is where the substitutionary atonement of Christ is so important. When we forgive each other as Christians, there is no indication that anyone has gotten away with anything. Remember, that whatever retribution or vengeance that that person deserves to have done to them was done to Christ. He took our place. Remember that ultimately, God is the one who would judge all sinners. All sinners will receive exactly what's coming to them for every single thing they've done. Every act of betrayal towards other people. Uh, if they've been untrustworthy, if they have lied to people, if they have hurt people, even if they get away with it in this life, they're not going to get away with it. They're going to be held accountable and punished by God severely. But what the believer, what we believe and what we hold on to is that I, I deserve those things and more. And God never just waved his hand and said, you know what? You go to church, it's okay. He never said that. He never said, well, I can tell you're going to be a, you're going to be a pretty good guy. We're going we're gonna to let it go. No, he doesn't say that. He punished Christ fully in his hot anger and wrath. He exploded, really, in anger on Christ, punishing him as if he had committed all the sins we punished, that all the sins we committed. So then when we forgive others who've sinned against us, um, that person is not getting away with anything, and we're not saying that they should get away with it. If they're not a believer, we know that they will get what's coming to them. I'm not the one who punishes for sin anyway. It's God. Number two, if they do become a Christian, they still haven't gotten away with anything because Christ was their substitute. So, But when the world looks at forgiveness, what we talk about, to them it looks very unfair. To them it looks wrong. It actually looks morally wrong to some because all they can see is Individual A has done this. What they have done is inexcusable. And now they're forgiven. And nothing happens to them. The reason why nothing happens to them is because it happened to Christ. And that is the message that the world desperately needs. And that is actually a message the world doesn't like and almost doesn't want. I say almost because of this. So when you're dealing with an individual who's done wrong, and let's say they've been caught, Oh, they definitely want forgiveness. They, they know they need forgiveness. 
But then when you turn it, turn it around and it comes to them needing to forgive others, there's fewer and fewer people who want to talk about that. Remember, Jesus told a story once about a man who owed, uh, and I'll use modern terminology, there was a man who owed a wealthy man millions, literally millions of dollars. It was money he could never repay if he gave 100% of every paycheck he would ever make for the rest of his life. He just gotten himself in such a bad way that uh, he could never, ever repay. And uh, he, he kind of had, had come to um, terms with that and realized he he needed to go to this man he owed the money to and basically just throw himself on the ground and say, I just beg for your mercy. I have nothing to offer you. I deserve whatever you give me. And so he went, he went to the man and he, and he did that. And miraculously, the man forgave him, which means that the man didn't have to pay back any of it. He, he didn't forgive him in the sense that he had to pay back part of it. He didn't have to pay back any of it. That this man was taking this, this complete loss and letting him go free uh, with, with no burden, no debt at all. I mean, it was astounding. Well, this man who had been forgiven of so much, he goes out and he had allowed, he had, he had uh, um, allowed others to borrow money from him. The money he allowed others to borrow was really pennies compared to what he owed this other man. You know, it, was, it, it would be like giving someone 20 bucks or giving someone 40 bucks. And uh, he finds somebody who owes him, you know, a couple of dollars. And, and the guy basically does what he did when he went before the rich man. And he throws himself down and says, I, I don't have it. I don't have it. I'm begging you, be merciful to me. Give me time. And this man, who'd been forgiven so much, grabs him and basically says, you're going to go to prison. And you're going to go to prison until you pay me. Well, the, there are people who are seeing this unfold before them. And they recognize that this man had been forgiven by this by the rich guy for so much. And they went back and they told him, they said, you won't believe what this man did. The one that you'd for, you had forgave, you had forgiven millions of dollars of debt, found someone who owed him a few dollars and has thrown him into prison till he can pay him back. And of course, the, the rich man was furious at this man because of his refusal to show mercy, even though he'd been shown great mercy and threw him into prison. So, we live in a society today where when it comes to social issues, as well as individual issues, forgiveness, properly understood, is, is not viewed as being a good thing. That, that's important to remember because we sometimes assume that everybody thinks forgiveness is a great thing. Everyone doesn't think that. They only think that when it comes to the wrong they've done. But when it comes to the wrong that's been done to them, or the wrong that's been done to their people. Nothing will ever be done. Nothing. There's not enough that someone can do or any group can do to appease them. Forgiveness isn't coming. And that's part of the problem with our society is there's no forgiveness. And here we see that part of the reason why there's no forgiveness in our society is because God has turned us over to our sin. Remember, it goes back to man not wanting to retain God in his knowledge. Man lives in ungodliness, suppressing the truth of God, in unrighteousness, as well as doing wrong. 
And as God down the line continues to turn us over to our sin, this is what we become. And so this is the natural consequence of the curse of sin and the judgment of God on us as individuals and as a society. So going on, he says this. He says, uh, um, unforgiving, unmerciful. Unmerciful kind of goes hand in hand with unforgiving. Um, where we want people to get exactly what they deserve, maybe even more. Uh, and then it says this about them. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God. Remember, that goes, it ties right back in the verse 18. They understand the wrath of God. The wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God is the judge. So here, they know the righteous judgment of God. So man also knows that God's going to judge. They, they know that. Again, they suppress the truth, but they know that. So knowing the, the righteous judgment of God, God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. So again, they understand the wrath of God. They understand that those who do these things deserve to die. He says here, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So here the idea is, is that not only are these individuals committing these things and, and living this way, but they are, they are showing uh, overt approval towards those who act the same way. So in general in society, we find other people who are, who are unloving or unforgiving, and we're telling them that, yeah, you're doing it the right way. You know, uh, let's say a lady, um, her husband has committed adultery, and let's just say for the sake of the story that he has uh, confessed, he's repented, He's, he's begging for another chance. And uh, let's say the woman is obviously very hurt by the betrayal. She's not sure what she wants to do. She speaks to her friend. And she says, you know, I, I just don't feel like I want to forgive him. And her friend says, well, good for you. Because you shouldn't. Now, hopefully a Christian would never say that. Uh, but that's the, that's the atmosphere that we live in. Uh, when individuals are... Um, uh, you know, unmerciful when they are unloving, when they are uh, involved in sexual immorality or covetousness. I mean, you, you see that with, with looting, that uh, uh, people are, are, as they break into stores, that sometimes they're helping others to break into stores and helping others to steal things. It's, it's, uh, they're, they're approving of what others are doing. Uh, and so that's all a result of the judgment of God. So let me kind of draw some things out of this. Again, uh, I, I want to talk about some things in light of Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, but also the meta-narrative that this, I, I believe, is, is expanding on, which kind of goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, actually, chapters 1 through 10, but primarily chapters 1 through 6 um, is the main part that I want to talk about. So here's this. Number one, because people have tried to say that um, human beings are, uh, that 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 the, either the Bible demeans them and they're not of much value or because of their kind of evolutionary Darwinistic kind of thinking, uh, they don't really see the value of man. So what we need to remember is, and also what we see here in this passage, is that human beings tend to devalue the, to devalue the value of other human beings. Um, human worth is dependent on there being a God. Remember, we're made in his image. So specifically the God of the Bible. You take away the God of the Bible, man is not unique, man is not special. 
human worth plummets. And, and we have, again, another piece of the puzzle that explains why people treat each other the way they do. Uh, remember that there is a, a huge difference between being created in the image of God and being a collection of particles. I mean, because that's what you're left with. Um, to some degree or another, that's what we're left with. There, there's nothing to give man any inherent meaning or value. So when it comes to, to man and, and the evil that man does that, that is spoken of here, uh, which again reveals, as I mentioned earlier and, and mentioned in my prayer, that reveals that man is in need of salvation. In fact, if you, if you look at it, all the religions of the world, um, now some people have said all religions um, are going in the same direction. They're not. Some, believe, some people will say that all religions teach the same thing. They don't. Uh, some think that all religions are just a different path to God. They're not. Um, but there is one thing every single religion agrees on, even with Christianity, and that is something's wrong. Something is wrong with the human race. Something's wrong with the person. Every single religion is, sets out to make man whole, uh, whether it's through meditation, whether it's through special rituals, whether it's through whatever it happens to be. There's, there's, there's something that's being offered to make man good or to make man whole because man is broken. And, of course, the Bible clearly explains that, I believe, very accurately. So uh, I believe that when you read through the Bible, we can, we can tell that to, to answer some of our questions in advance, God reveals that he has, I guess you could say, used some systems, uh, manifested some ways or attempts to help man be good. You know, man has sinned in Genesis 1. He's disobeyed God. So... Let's put some things in place to help man be good. So God gave man a conscience um, uh, to guide and direct us. We talk about sometimes that uh, I was going to do something, I was going to do this, but my conscience wouldn't let me, you know, that kind of thing. Also, God revealed moral laws to Noah. I think we see that. It's not like the law of Moses is different, but there's a kind of a law that's in the heart of man. Um, and uh, so, th so there's some moral laws that he gave to Noah, his descendants. And then, of course, there's what we call the Ten Commandments and the detailed law of Moses that God gave to a, a specific group. So we do need to, first of all, ask this question, why isn't the conscience enough to ensure goodness? Now, what I'm getting at is there is a belief by many that man really is basically good. People don't always say it that way, but, but that's the idea. And that's that's what Romans 1 and that's what Genesis 1 through 6 is clearly telling us is, is untrue. That man is not basically good. That man is basically evil. That doesn't mean that man has no value. It doesn't mean all those things that, that people try to, you know, people say, well, you're just kind of, you know, you, you're just being negative and I believe in being positive and I try to see the good in others. There's nothing wrong with trying to see the good in others. But we do need to make sure we that we we have an understanding of reality that, that's based on truth. And that's man is not basically good. But, but there's this idea that's prevalent in our society that man is basically good. And there are some who believe that the conscience is good enough. So what do we, what we do see in the Bible is that the conscience can be easily manipulated into thinking it is doing good while doing evil. Uh, remember uh, Eve? She looked at the fruit. It looked good. It's pleasing to the eye. And she gave it to Adam. It's almost as if she thought she was doing a good thing. It doesn't say that. You, you might want to say it's implied. 
But the bottom line is, is she was easily manipulated. In fact, what did, what did Satan say to her? Ah, God knows that when you eat of this, you'll be like him. And that's given as being a good thing. And so she was uh, easily manipulated. The conscience also can be easily dulled. Uh, the more a person does or the more evil a person does, uh, the more hardened they become and the quieter the voice of their conscience becomes. We, we know that. Uh, there's thousands of articles written on the uh, numbing of the conscience where an individual um, becomes desensitized to violence, becomes desensitized to death, um, be, uh, becomes desensitized to crime because of what they read or because of what they watch or because of what they how they're raised, what they see. And so the conscience uh, begins to become quiet and they become accustomed to it. So the conscience is not something that can really guide us into, into goodness. Also, we, we see clearly that the conscience is not very powerful. It's not as powerful as our natural drives uh, when it comes to greed, envy, sex, alcohol, any of those things, they easily overpower the conscience. How many times has an individual said, I, I decided I would not do this or not do that, and then before you know what they're doing it. Uh, without explicit moral laws, the conscience alone is often a very poor guide to doing what is right. Um, probably because it lends itself to us uh, going by the way we feel. You know, we, I feel this is right, or I feel this, or I feel that. And that can be a very bad way to live your life. It can get into a lot of trouble, to say the least. So this belief that people are basically good, that's foolish, uh, it's dangerous, and it's wrong. Uh, it's very harmful. Uh, some, maybe many, want to believe, again, that man is basically good, but they do recognize that there's corruption, and they'll say that man is corrupted by society. Now, that's really a kind of a new idea. A Frenchman by the name of Rousseau, uh, who was around the 1700s, came up with that, that people are basically good, and that it's the corruption of society that corrupts the individual. Uh, but let me, let me uh, read you some statements, some kind of rhetorical questions, as well as some facts um, to answer this question, which is, so how can a person believe that people are basically good? How can a person really believe that based on the following? Number one, which parents or how many parents never had to teach their children to be good? How many times do we have to tell our kids to say thank you? If our kids were basically good, once or twice should be enough. But we have to tell them over and over and over again. We have to, so it's not just that our kids do wrong and we have to correct them. We actually have to teach them manners, to teach them to respect their elders, to teach them uh, discipline. So we have to teach our kids to be good. So if they're basically good, why do we have to work so hard at that? Uh, most children or many children have been bullied. They've been physically hurt uh, or maybe sadistically taunted by other children. Um, I know when I was a kid, there was a few years there. Uh, I guess by today's definition, I was, I was bullied or taunted. Uh, I don't know many kids that weren't taunted, made fun of in certain ways. Um, uh, for me, it was a few years. I, I don't think I was scarred for life because of that, but uh, some that taunting goes on for many, many, many years. Uh, but why does that go on if we're basically good? If people are basically good, why is that a problem? We have people being bullied on school buses, people being bullied at school, kids being bullied on the internet. Um, and and it's, a, it's a growing, people will tell you that it's a growing problem. 
So how can we say that people are basically good when that's taking place? That's untrue. And then what percentage of kids have been physically abused, verbally abused, or sexually abused by adults? The numbers are astounding uh, when it comes to that. And then if you throw in the kids that are involved or are victims of, of sex trafficking uh, and include those in the percentage of kids that are physically and sexually abused, the numbers are off the charts. I mean, remember that sex trafficking takes place because it brings in literally billions of dollars. There, there, are, pe there are people forking out money to be involved in this kind of enterprise. How can we say that mankind is basically good? There's just, the facts don't fit. There, there's, it's, it's like this, they're, they're missing each other. If people are basically good, how do, we, how do we account for all the Roman citizens back in the days at Rome who paid to watch and even laugh as people were eaten alive by wild animals? Remember, it wasn't just gladiators, which that was bad enough, seeing them fight to the death and they wanted to see blood and gore and they wanted to see death, but they also were entertained by animals eating people alive. Uh, they, they wanted to see that. How can we say that people are basically good when a whole society was uh, trying to get into the, would, would they, they were not only trying to get in the Colosseum, they were entertained for days and weeks on end as a result of that. What about all the wars? Few wars are really morally justified. And we have the mass killing and the, and the uh, barbaric behavior, torture and rape. I mean, it's unbelievable the, the, the numbers that come comes out of the uh, some of the wars and some of the atrocities that have taken place. And, and some of the things that we've, we can guess at, but we've never heard of. Uh, how can we say that man is basically good? Man, man is not even close to being basically good at all. If, if people are basically good, why did virtually every society in history practice slavery? I mean, when we talk about slavery, if you want to deal with the real history of slavery, there's very few ethnicities around that did not have their hand in slavery at some point in their history. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Then, then we come to the most famous, which is the Holocaust and the mass murder and the sadism that took place during that. The conservative number is six, nine million Jews that were killed. Before them, the gypsies were killed and those who were mentally ill were, ki were killed by the Nazi doctors. Um, Live medical exper experiments were carried out on people and they weren't given anesthesia or anything. It was just uh, unbelievable what was done to them. And that was done for years and years. And then there were some of these concentration camps were close to other towns and villages. And the people kind of had an idea of what was going on and they just kind of, you know, ignored it. There's a story I read in a book by uh, Erwin Lutzer. And Erwin Lutzer was talking about a, a Lutheran church in Germany. And they would have uh, their services on Sunday. And it was known that when this took place, the trains would, as they would pull out on Sunday morning to take thousands and thousands of Jews to the death camps, when the train would pass by, if you were in the church and it was quiet, you could hear the moaning and the screaming and the yelling and the crying of those in the boxcars as the train would go by. And so what the church would do is they would arrange the service so that when the, when the uh, trains would go by, they would be singing. 
so they could not hear the screams of the people. How can we say that man is basically good? Man is not basically good. The Soviet Union murdered 20 to 30 million innocent people during Stalin's regime. I mean, that's an amazing number of people. In Cambodia, the communist leader killed one-third of the Cambodian population. In the Ukraine, four to six million people were starved to death by the Soviet communists. In China, under Mao, he starved at least 60 million people. And what he did was he sent, they had food, but he used the food to pay for weapons for his military. 60 million people starved to death, that painful, horrible death, starved to death. And that's the minimum number that were killed by this man and his policies. Then, uh, pre-World War II, as well as in World War II, the Japanese massacred Chinese and Korean civilians. They used, at one time, hundreds of thousands of Chinese and Korean women as comfort women for their soldiers. Uh, the rapes of women, it, it's astounding what took place. Then there were, then there were also some Nazi-like medical experiments without anesthesia that were done on civilian, on Chinese civilians by the Japanese. There's some uh, pretty gruesome books out there that describe some of those things that take place. Then more recently, we have the Hutu mass murder of, of the Tutsis, where in a hundred day period, they killed 500,000 to up to 1 million Tutsis in Rwanda. Just, and that was all because of ethnicity. One, one race or one ethnicity, the Hutus, didn't like the Tutsis. And so they killed them. Most of the murders were, killed out, were, were carried out with a machete. Even though they had guns and they had ammunition, they preferred to use the machete. So in 100 days, just do the math. Just take 100 days and divide it into 500,000 and figure out how many people were killed per day. And again, that's the minimum. It was between 500,000 and a million. In fact, so many bodies were thrown into the rivers that in one of the bordering countries, Uganda, Uganda began to experience um, some, a breakout of some major diseases. And they had to hire uh, and specially train hundreds of people to wear hazmat suits and to go into the river and to pull out the thousands of bodies that were floating in the river and get them, put them in, in mass graves and burn them or bury them because of the diseases that were being uh, kind of brought about as a result of these decaying and rotting bodies. Uh, then there's the, the Turks who massacred the uh, Armenians. Uh, in fact, when that uh, slaughter took place, the word genocide did not exist. The word genocide was a word that was created to explain what the Turks did to the Armenians, and Armenians, I should say. And that's where the word genocide comes from, is from that. So in light of all that information, how do some believe that mankind is basically good? I mean, how do they do that? Well, one reason is many people who don't believe in God have to believe in man, or they will have nothing to believe in, and that would lead to complete despair. So again, you, you remove God from the equation, what's left? What do you believe in? Well, you believe in the, in the goodness of man, that man is basically good and he's been corrupted by um, unseen forces or he's been corrupted by society, but somehow we can fix it because that's what man believes. Man who doesn't believe in God or who suppresses the truth wants to believe that he can fix it and he can't. Another reason is you have the rejection of the Bible as the primary source of wisdom. 
It used to be even the days of the founding of our country. You had many individuals who, who weren't Christians, but they believed in the wisdom of the Bible, and they, and they believed it was right to follow it. Well, that book is no longer viewed as, as that. It's no longer seen as being a, uh, uh, a book of wisdom that should be followed. Um, it's made fun of. It's derided. It's kind of thrown out. And so as a, as a result, we don't follow that. Uh, Christians don't believe that man is basically good because the Bible says man is not basically good. That's the wisdom of the Bible. Um, third reason why uh, man believes that um, uh, man is basically good is simply the, the, the uh, naivete that comes from living in a, in a good society. If you think about it, in our country, our country, it's, it's, a, it's got problems, but it's a, it's a good society. It's mostly law-abiding. We have a lot of freedom. We have a lot of abundance. A lot of things we can do. It's a good society. Most of us, um, I mean, we lock our doors at night, but most of us expect the police to show up in seven minutes or so if they're called. Most of us don't believe that we're going to be a victim of a crime in two minutes. Um, there's, we live in a good society. So what happens is we live in a good society. We see a lot of good. So we tend to believe that man is basically good. But again, that, that belief is, is dangerous. And here's why it's dangerous. Uh, and these are not original with me, uh, but I believe these are good points. Number one, if we, if we believe that people are good or basically good, then there's no effort made to teach children to be good. We already see that. It used to be that in schools, uh, you would have either a special class on character training or teachers would kind of reinforce good character. Now, we still had that in school. I've coached high school football for a long time. It happens on the football field. I don't know about the other sports. Um, I'm, I'm going to assume it does a little bit. But I know in football, uh, what you hear head coaches often and other coaches telling their kids is you need to be good, treat people right, you need to be responsible, you need to be hard, hardworking, you need to be a person of honor, you need to be a person of character. So, so that, that's, that's taken place, but it, only in a very small area for a very small time. But you don't have parents and other teachers and systems and schools. You don't have them teaching kids to be good. It's not a thing. So there's no character education anymore. Besides, if everyone is basically good, why would you spend time teaching kids things that come naturally? And so when it comes to parents whose primary responsibility it is to do that, uh, they're more concerned with their kids' self-esteem than they are their kids' self-control. They're more concerned about their grades than their goodness. Nothing wrong with being concerned about your kids' grades, but you should want your kids to be good. You want them to be good to other people. You want them to be good to their friends, good to everyone. You want them to be good. You don't want them to be bullies. You don't want them to be uh, lazy. You don't want them to be liars. You don't want them to be deceitful. You don't want them to be violent. We should want them to be good. Uh, another reason why the belief that uh, people are basically good is dangerous is God and religion become morally unnecessary? If we're basically good, who needs a transcendent source of morality? A good God or a Bible? Who needs it? As we more and more believe that people are good, the less religious and the less Bible-centered we become. The less religious and Bible-centered we become, the more we come to believe people are basically good. And then lastly, um, as I've already mentioned, it was brought about by Rousseau, 
Society is blamed for evil, not the individual. We don't hold the individual accountable. And we need to hold the individual accountable. The Bible does. Throughout the Bible, no matter what society is like, God holds the individual responsible. No one can ever justify their wrongdoing on anything or anyone else. God says that we must take full responsibility for what we do. God holds us responsible. If we believe that outside forces rather than individual are to blame for a human evil, again, there's no reason for me to change. If, if people are good, the evil they do must be caused by something that's outside of us. Uh, and that's why you hear people say things like uh, poverty causes crime. But you know that's been disproved. Crime causes poverty. Uh, you have tons of people who are born into poverty and raised in poverty who turn out good. It's, it, in fact, sometimes it's overwhelming. Poverty didn't cause the problems. It, it's the crime that causes the poverty. And there's a lot of phrases like that. You know, some people say that um, this is caused or this is caused. And there are contributing factors. But again, the individual is responsible. Again, remember that if escaping poverty made better people, then the rich would be the kindest and the most honest people in the world. And they're not. So what's important for us to recognize then is that from Genesis and the book of Romans, it teaches us that in the battle for a good world, it's not a, it's not a battle between the individual and society. It's a battle between the individual and his or her own nature. And thus we need the gospel because man is unable to fight his nature. We're spiritually dead. Some have pointed out that one of the most important questions a society that wishes to survive can ask is, how do we make good people? How do we do that? But societies that believe that people are basically good don't ask that question. And we're not asking that question in our society. And thus, people don't see a need for God, no, religion, no, no need for religion, no need for the Bible. That's why Paul is going through all this detail to explain the condition of man, to explain what we are by nature, to show us God's interaction with us. And here in chapter 1, we see God's interaction is one of both judgment and mercy, or discipline and mercy. We see the result of uh, man, uh, how man responds to the good information that he's given, and that he is so evil because his evilness goes down to the bone, so to speak, that he suppresses what he knows to be true. He just becomes demented, and he doesn't think reasonably. He doesn't think logically. So thus we have this great need for the gospel. And so I would encourage you that if you don't know Christ, to look at your life and to figure out if your life is whole or if your, or if your life is broken. I think we find that all of us have a lot of regrets. All of us can easily identify the problems that we have. A lot of us would like to be better people, and we're not. And, and we don't know how to change that. We can't. God, God has to do that. And the only way that God will do that is by us first being reconciled to God, being made right with Him. Because the sin that we commit, the wrong that we do that's against each other, is against Him first. We're breaking His code, His moral law. So when we look around our society now, we see, you know, the violent protest and we see the looting. And you know that during some of the violent protests, there's been murders. Uh, people are being ambushed. It's not, it's not just police being ambushed. It's uh, individuals are taking an opportunity to 
um, go after people or, or just to, you know, just to kill. Uh, that, that takes place because something is wrong. And even though they've, they've, they've violated the law of man, they've violated the law of our country, they're violating the law of God first. Uh, and so what we need is, and it goes back to that very unpopular concept that we discussed, which is we need forgiveness. And the only one who can give us forgiveness is, is God, because he's, he's the one who we have offended. He's the one that we betrayed. It's his law that we've broken. And the only way that he will forgive us is because he would never allow our sin to go unpunished. And, and that's why Christ came. Christ came to be my substitute, to take my place, to voluntarily uh, take on my sin and then voluntarily take on or to accept the punishment that God had for me and had it played out on him. It's really an astounding story if you think about it. But it is a story of, of God's great love for us and God's desire to see us reconciled to himself. In the same way that many of us who have children or grandchildren, if suddenly one of our grandchildren or, or children was to be estranged from us, and let's say that's a very severe, very painful separation, and, and we begin to long for them because we love them dearly, and we get to a point to where we're willing to endure or maybe suffer anything to be reconciled because we love them. And, and sometimes people have said things, you know, I would, I would rather get sick. I would rather be the one who's hurt. I would rather be the one who's in the poorhouse. I would rather, you know, fill in the blank. And we're, we're willing to go through those kinds of things because we love them so much. We want to be reconciled to them. We want to hold them again. We want to, to love them and for them to love us and to be together. Well, that's, that's how God loves us. And the only way that could happen was, again, for Christ to take on our sin. So it's a great story, uh, a great true story, one that we as believers believe and accept and have embraced. And we need to remember that as we go through all these things, what Paul is clearly showing us is that all men, without excuse, desperately need Christ. And the message that he's going to explain as we continue to work our way through is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ. So I trust again that you will read through Romans 1. We'll pick it up in Romans chapter 2 next week as we continue our study. Let's pray. As always, Father, we're grateful. You're good to us. You're kind to us. We thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would cement these truths deeply and firmly implant them in our hearts and minds, that we would not only think about them often, but, Lord, that they would shape who we are as people. And that, Father, you would help us to live the kind of life that, that we should live. That we would, as Christians, be good people. That we would be good to others because we're rightly related to you. Help us, Father, again, to think clearly, to think logically, to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.